This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we have a sequel of sorts. One of our most popular programs last year was our special, Exploring Telenovelas. So this week, we're at it again, going through a list of the best telenovelas of this generation. But first, Kurt Devine is away this week, so Alexia Campbell steps in to provide our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The Catholic Church's College of Cardinals selected the first pope from Latin America this week. Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio of Buenos Aires, Argentina, became Pope Francis. We hear his first speech as pope to those gathered in St. Peter's Square via Vatican Radio. Brothers and sisters, good evening. You all know that the duty of the conclave was to give a bishop to Rome. It seems that my brother cardinals have gone almost to the ends of the earth to get him. But here we are. The new pope takes the place of Benedict XVI, the first pope to retire in more than 600 years. More than 40% of the world's Catholics live in Latin America. An overwhelming majority of people living on the Falkland Islands say they wish to remain a British overseas territory. In a referendum this week, 99.8% voted in favor of British rule over Argentine rule. Both countries have long disputed ownership of the islands off the coast of Argentina. Government officials in Argentina said the vote does not change a country's claim to the islands, which they call the Malvinas. Political tensions are rising in Venezuela as the country prepares to choose a leader to replace the late President Hugo Chavez. The election will be held less than a month away, on April 14th. Vice President Nicolás Maduro and opposition leader Enrique Capriles Radonsky registered as candidates this week. Before dying of cancer, Chavez urged Venezuela to pick Maduro as the next socialist president. Capriles, the opposing candidate, is governor of Venezuela's largest state and an outspoken critic of the socialist government. Campaigning officially begins April 2nd. Groups representing indigenous broadcasters in Guatemala presented a case against their country's government at the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. The indigenous groups say that Guatemala's government has not lived up to the peace accord signed almost 17 years ago. Those accords guaranteed indigenous communities broadcasting and communication rights. Cesar Gomez is with Cultural Survival, one of the groups filing the complaint. The state constructed a racist system to marginalize and exclude indigenous communities. After the war, the government privatized radio frequencies, but if frequencies belong to the state, they should be for the public. But they say that's private property now. The Guatemalan government classifies indigenous broadcasters as pirate stations and has used military and police forces to close numerous stations. For Latin Pulse, I'm Alexia Campbell. Thanks, Alexia. And now we turn to telenovelas. The last time we took up this topic, we covered not just the basics of this popular television format, but the new trend of narco-novellas. This week, we look at some of the classic telenovelas and the countries producing them. We start with Colombia, and perhaps the most well-known telenovela of the recent past, Yo Soy Betty La Fea. 
which many in the U.S. know from its adaptation, Ugly Betty. Antonio La Pastina, an associate dean at Texas A&M University, is also an expert on telenovelas. He spoke to us via Skype about Betty La Fea. When you cannot talk about contemporary telenovelas in Latin America without thinking about how did that telenovela become such an incredible success and hit. So what did the Colombians do in Betty La Fea that, that struck a chord everywhere? One of the, the issues about Betty La Fea is that it really presented a possibility for transformation for people who are in the periphery. He was supposedly the ugly uh, woman who turns out to be pretty competent, you know, and, and kind of subverts that idea that is only external beauty and stardom that allows you to be successful, which is the hallmark of, of, of Latin American telenovelas. You are the, the women are always pretty. You know, if you are not pretty, you are in the site, you are in the, in the, uh, are the maid or you are not popular. So I think what that telenovela did was subvert the genre in, in its process of putting the central character uh, or making the central character a woman that was supposedly not pretty. And so the other thing that Betty La Fea does is it is is not just a telenovela that becomes popular throughout Latin America and beyond Latin America, but it becomes then a television series in the United States. I know, I know. Uh, blows my mind, actually. <laughs> Because uh, it's like what we've been talking about for, I think, decade, a decade now, that the crossover is going to happen and the genre is going to enter the U.S. market. And Betty La Fea was, a lot, was able to do it because it changed the genre, the format. I don't think Americans, U.S. Americans, are set to already to, um, to commit the kind of time that we have historically committed in Latin America to telenovelas. But Ugly Betty on ABC, the network ABC in the United States, really wasn't a telenovela. It was an American adaptation of that character. Yeah. And that's why it was successful. What they did was like they, trans- they, they bought the idea and, and re- remade it into an American format that is very popular and acceptable. It had, it, it, it had a lot of the characteristics of a telenovela. It had... Uh, serialized. It was a continuous plot. It wasn't like a, a tight uh, begin episode that would end like you know many other uh, comedies are. Like you know, the Big Bang Theory ends at the end of the episode, and that's it. You know, you have resolution. With Ugly Betty, you hardly ever had resolution at the end of the episode. So that was very much a characteristic of serialized fiction. They transformed the genre, but you still had the same arc. She starts as the poor, uh, you know, woman who is supposed to be ugly without taste, and she ends pretty glamorous working in London and with the man. So, I mean, the narrative is exactly the same. We work in the same art. So, so that's it. You're headed back to New York? No, I think I'm going to stay around here for a while, see what I can find. Maybe... Take you to dinner tonight if you're free. I would love that. Well, I better get back to work. I'm really glad you're here. 
America Ferreira had the starring role in Ugly Betty. It's not just a breakthrough for style, but it's also a bit of a breakthrough for Latinas, is it not? Oh, without a doubt. I, how many other uh, shows do you have a Latina star? You know, on primetime television that can last that many seasons. You might have a, you have a couple with men, but I don't think I cannot think of anyone with a woman. I, I could think of other Latinas in, in starring roles, but not that the whole series is built around them. Actresses portraying Latina characters in U.S. primetime programs, such as Eva Longoria on ABC TV's longtime hit Desperate Housewives, or Sofia Vergara on ABC's current hit Modern Family, evoke stereotypes and character types familiar to fans of telenovelas. That they are very much part of the stereotype of the Latina women on the screen. They are very, uh, they're beautiful, they're sensual, they are erotic, they are uh, spitfires. You know, they go back to, they, they are throwbacks to particular representations of Latino women, uh, which Becky LaFeya was not. You know, Becky LaFeya was a, uh, I mean, there are other stereotypes, so we can talk about it, but she was certainly not uh, the traditional stereotype of the Latino women. And now Professor Carolina Acosta Alzuru from the University of Georgia joins us via Skype to continue the conversation. For instance, in Colombia, of course, everyone talks about Yo Soy Betty La Fea, but I think from Fernando Gaitan, we have to mention Café con Aroma de Mujer, which is a story set in the context of the coffee industry in Colombia. It's an old telenovela now, and it doesn't have these production values, but it is a delightful storyline. Que yo soy la única mujer en su vida. Es verdad que usted nunca ha estado con ninguna mujer. Gaviota. Yo te lo dije ayer y era la verdad. Tú eres la primera y la última mujer en mi vida. Acosta Alzuru has focused on many telenovelas from her homeland of Venezuela. She started with one particular program. It was a telenovela called El País de las Mujeres, The Country of Women. I'm Venezuelan. And I thought, well, this could be interesting. And so I took it as a case study. That was in 1999. And yes, by the time I talked to the writer of the telenovela, I was an expert on that particular telenovela, but I realized I was completely illiterate on the production side of the telenovela, uh, its cultural hooks. And so that's how I started studying them. And even though I have my case studies, which are very complex and very, I, I would even say ambitious, because I actually, when I take a telenovela, I take it from all aspects possible are centered on one writer, a Venezuelan writer called Leonardo Padron. But that doesn't mean I don't have to keep like a, you know, a telescopic view on the genre as a whole. Tú no venías como loca, mi reina, tú venías como rica, que es otra cosa. Otra cosa fue lo que vieron ustedes en desayuno, señor. Te habían equivocado, eres tremendo babosa. Ay, cosita rica. I studied a telenovela in which the antagonist, the male antagonist, was a metaphor of President Hugo Chavez. So that is just fascinating in and of itself. Uh, this raises the entire point of 
aren't these meant as metaphors to a larger political context? Well, this one in particular was meant as a metaphor. And in that story, the, the author, Leonardo Padron, actually wrote that character as a metaphor of President Chavez, trying to highlight the, these aspects of Hugo Chavez, which are his very charismatic, but he alienates people. People get polarized around him. As a president, even though he's very charismatic, he can be informal, he can be improvised. But those are characteristics that are not just of Hugo Chavez. They are characteristics of many Venezuelans. So the reception of this character was very was fascinating because in a country so politically polarized, people who were who are or were at that time, this was 2003, 2004, against Hugo Chavez actually saw Chavez in the character. And the character had a lot of humor in it, and they laughed at the character. Whereas people who actually were for the president, never saw the president in the, in the character. They just saw an average Venezuelan who is funny and charismatic, and they laughed with the character. So that was, there was a slight difference there, but very important, and everyone was watching. That was in the immediate post-coup period in Venezuela. And so I'm curious about what network that appeared on and uh, how popular, I guess, it was. It was extremely popular, and people still remember that telenovela. It was called Cosita Rica, and the, teleno the network that broadcast it was Venevisión. We're talking about 2003. It, it aired from September 2003 to the end of August 2004. It was parallel to the very thorny road to the presidential recall referendum of August 15, 2004. At that point, at the beginning, in 2003, this is after... The, the, the coup, or the, you know, some people define it differently, in April 2002, and the major work stoppage of December and January of 2002-2003. Yeah. And so Venevision at that point, like many private media outlets, were squarely in the opposition. And even though this was a metaphor, it was, you know, very elegantly done. The telenovela had a lot of political content. It editorialized. And, but, you know, telenovelas are commercial products. If it's going well, the network is not saying anything. They were happy. Now, by the end of the telenovela, when it's approaching its end, and the referendum, the real-life presidential referendum is about to happen, then the government started pressuring the media outlets. And actually, the government met with Venevision executives and said, you cannot have the presidential... There was going to be like a presidential referendum in the telenovela too, around this character. And they said, you can't have that referendum there before the real one happens. And by then, something started happening and Venevision started moderating its line to the point in which by the end of the telenovela, they were censoring some, epi some episodes, some you know, lines, and some of the characters. And that's when it started to the point that we have now, in which Venevision is completely uh, moderate. They don't say anything against the president or its government. Acosta Alzuru says Venezuela was once a leader 
in the production of popular telenovelas that reached audiences throughout the hemisphere, if not the world. But not so much now, due to the pressures on television networks from the Venezuelan government. I don't think Venezuela is a leader anymore. I think the Venezuelan industry has been minimized by the political situation. We had two big producers, Venevision and RCTV. RCTV was taken off the air uh, in 2007, and that just like uh, minimized the whole industry. Well, it it just, it halved it. When we return, more from our telenovela experts this time, examining the telenovelas of Brazil. Stay with us. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to our special examination of telenovelas on Latin Pulse. This program features expert interviews via Skype. Our experts, Antonio La Pastina of Texas A&M and Carolina Acosta Elzuru of the University of Georgia, are both impressed with the telenovelas of Brazil. Brazil is a powerhouse. They have probably one of the best productions in the world, if not the best. And why? Because the production values are fantastic. Because the stories take risks. They, they're such a big country that they're self-sufficient. So even if they don't sell in their international, which they do, um, they can still, you know, pay for it, for the, for, for the investment in their own country. Because it's a big country. It's a big telenovela country. It's one of these countries in which telenovelas are the prime time. You mentioned this telenovela, The Clone. Um, why is that something that we should be watching? Because the story is very unique. It's extremely well done. It, it, I think it's what we called, you know, in, in Spanish we have a, a, a saying, quedó redonda. It, so, like, it's from every aspect, it's good. It's a very good telenovela. So the cast, the writing, the production, and the storyline, you just, you know, it hooks you, you follow it. So the clone is, is excellent. And now Antonio La Pastina rejoins the discussion. The clone was an interesting telenovela because I'm trying to date it, and I think it's probably now close to 15 years old. But it still seems somewhat popular. I think Telemundo has it it's running again. The clone was created and written by Gloria Perez. She likes a couple of things. One is that she loves to do telenovelas that have an international location. Uh, and the clone, if I'm not mistaken, had as Morocco. Uh, and then she likes kind of health, but technology, so she's a bit very interesting. So she was very concerning the clone with um, issues of artificial intelligence, cloning, and ultimately it's still a pretty melodrama. It's like, you know, it's about romance and love and betrayal and uh, surpassing the obstacles for, you know, uh, a couple to be together. 
but in a very interesting, uh, with a very, very interesting twist. So um, it was very popular in Brazil, and I know it's been exported uh, quite widely. It has also been remade. Does it also have science fiction aspects to it? Oh, it does, yeah, which is unusual. She did Caminho das Indias, the, the way of the, to the Indias, and I'm not sure if that's been popular internationally, as, as popular internationally, but it, it had to do with a romance between uh, an Indian, Indians and Brazilians, and it was set, part of it was set in Rajasthan, I think. Another telenovela she did, that she had a cross-dresser, transgender character that became very, very popular um, and, and very central to the, the, to the narrative. Um, so she has pushed some of the limits of what can be done in telenovelas. One telenovela that she was writing, her daughter was an actress and she was killed. And that was a very traumatic moment in Brazilian, you know, was when fiction and reality really merged and the so, so she was killed in real life, in and real they had to kill her after the show. Her boyfriend in the telenovela. They were uh, characters in the telenovela, and and he killed her in real life. You can't make these things up. You can't. That now infamous Brazilian telenovela was called De Corpo e Alma, Body and Soul. The Empregettes were from the, the telenovela called Cheias de Charme. Within the telenovela, you had a band of three women who were maids. And within the telenovela, they become singers together and they have a single, and, and the single becomes very popular in the telenovela, but also becomes a huge success in real life. In outside of the telenovela. So it was a, a very smartly done with great opportunities for product placement, for uh, cultural uh, uh, insertions into the mainstream. So, and, it, it, and the, the characters were very good. And they were also doing what you had talked about, which is changing Brazilian reality from inside a television show. In many ways, yes. What I think Brazilian telenovelas have done very well is create opportunities for inserting products in the telenovelas, you know, and creating a market for... Uh, and they do that very successfully because they make telenovelas that are very appealing to different segments of the population, um, either by using you know, music or using reality or using political issues. So they are very successful. Uh, and in being successful, they create incredible market potential. It's interesting because in the past, Brazilian novelas dealt with much more superstition. And so you would have cases that would be fantastical. Or um, And now I think you start seeing, rarely, but you start seeing some cases of more science fiction, uh, futuristic, so are you telling me that, that more traditionally in Brazil, telenovelas had more of that magical realism that we would see in Latin American literature yeah. than what we see in telenovelas? 
you would find that that was very popular in the late 70s, 80s, uh, well, 70s and, and 80s, um, uh, going into into the 90s. And I think some some of us have argued that it had to do with the dictatorship. It was a way to address issues metaphorically that you could not address directly. So you would, um, you know, a lot of the, the, the novellas were set in uh, rural locations were fictitious towns, and then you had uh, struggles of power that were mystical or they were they, they infused of magical realism, if you will. First of all, the, 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 the link between Latin American culture and telenovelas, what does it say? I think, in a way, it says, it talks a little bit about our melodramatic soul. I think one of the biggest questions remain is that why are they so important and why they are so popular? Uh, I think we have theorized and argued in many different ways that has to do with um, how they they connect to basic ideas about uh, romance and love and uh, melodrama. But they are very uh, unique in its own context. You look at Brazilian telenovelas, they are very different than... Uh, Colombian or Mexican. So what is that makes that particular genre so seductive to viewers from so many parts of the world? And I don't know if we really have an answer to that. That's what a lot of people talked about in Brazil is that as the economy heat, hit up, heat, heated, and cable and satellite became a viability, the telenovelas were going to die, and they haven't. No, they remain very popular. One of the things you were talking about is is the idea that they might die off. This idea that that low culture is maybe replaced by something else later. But but what we've seen instead is that higher production values have been added to these cultural products, and and what they've become is is something different. They have evolved, yeah, and are even more seductive, mm-hmm. and habitual for people than than they may have been even decades ago. I, I think you're right on. I think they, they have evolved and they have become uh, much more attuned to the the, the, the the trends. And I think the lessons, I think, that Brazilian telenovelas have uh, learned very fast and very early is that if you're going to be attractive to very different segments of the population, you need to design programs that can tap in all of those different audiences. So Brazilian telenovelas, like Colombians do, uh, and to some extent Venezuelans as well, you have men, young, old, women, uh, class, different segments of the the population really interested in following those programs. And they become part of your news news stories. They are in the cover of the newspapers. They are in the, the radio because they are so complex and seductive. And I think that is what is it's really, I think, the future of, of the telenovelas is like more complex, higher production values to really reach a greater audience, if you will. We want to thank our guest experts today, Antonio La Pastina of Texas A&M University and Carolina Acosto Azuru of the University of Georgia. That concludes our latest telenovela special. And now a first for us, the first note from a listener that we can repeat on the program. This note complained about our coverage last week concerning the death of Hugo Chavez. 
That program featured Daniel Hellinger of Webster University and Eric Hirschberg and Fulton Armstrong of American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. Here are excerpts from the letter. Are you secretly on the USAID payroll? Thank God Webster University has a real, honest, and truthful professor, and the two from a university in D.C. as well seemed not to want to castigate Chavez for all that is wrong. For your information, Venezuela was one of the most corrupt places in Latin America pre-Chavez. Interesting show, but I think you had the wrong tact throughout. Dave Davis from the Kansas City, Missouri metropolitan area. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Latin Pulse is now on Mixler, webcasting at 2100 hours GMT most Fridays. That's 1700 hours U.S. Eastern Daylight Time. Our Mixler webcasts include weekend retrospectives. Latin Pulse is also available elsewhere on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, associate producer Alexia Campbell and announcer Victor Kilo. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>